0: The Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Raising kids can be a challenge. A man named Paul Hampton writes It was a hectic day of running errands with my wife and son. As if the stress weren't enough, my four-year-old son Christopher insisted on asking questions about everything. He told me how to drive better, and then proceeded to sing every song that he knew. Finally, fed up with the incessant chatter, I made him an offer. I said, Christopher, if you'll be quiet just for a few minutes, I'll give you a quarter. Well, it worked. But when we stopped for lunch, I unknowingly began to harp on him. Christopher, sit up straight. Christopher, don't spill your drink. Christopher, don't talk with your mouth full. Finally, he gave me a serious look and said, Dad, if you'll be quiet for just a few minutes, I'll give you a quarter. (laughs) Well, at least that father was trying to correct his son. Sometimes we can pay dearly for silence, and sadly, with all of King David's many great qualities, it would seem that his parenting skills were an abysmal failure, and that's what we're going to look at today. Verse 6, please. And his father never, had never rebuked him at any time by asking, why have you done so? And he was also a very handsome man, and he was born after Absalom. This is a terrible indictment of David for his failure in fatherly discipline. It also happens to be one of the most important comments made anywhere in the Bible on the subject of raising children. The implication is that David should have been holding his sons accountable. And that if only he had done so, Adonijah possibly would not have been living for the glory of a crown that was not his to claim. This rather telling comment on David's indulgent treatment of his son is consistent with the king's dealings with his other two older sons. When Amnon raped Tamar, we read that David was very angry, but he did nothing. And then when Absalom killed Amnon for in revenge for Tamar, well, you guessed it, once again, David did nothing. David was a passive father. The problem is not what he did, but what he did not do. Parents who love their children, as David certainly did, understand how difficult it can be to deal firmly with unacceptable behavior. Some, like David, just try to avoid the conflict. They do not set or enforce boundaries with their children but that will never work as proverbs 22:15 tells us that foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child but the rod of correction will drive it far from them scripture teaches us spare the rod and spoil the child for i heard of one kid who thought of a different interpretation when his father quoted that to him he said Oh, no, dad, it means you are to spare the rod and instead spoil the child. So it is hardly surprising when these children grow up without valuing self-control, but rather have a sense of self-entitlement to do whatever they want to do. Children spared the experience of the frustration of not always getting their way when they are younger, will not be well-equipped when they are older to deal with reality. This is a failure of parental love. We are told that Adonijah was very handsome, and he was also the oldest living son. It is interesting that the Bible is generally cautious about the value of such external appearances. Now, it is not a sin to be too good-looking. And even if it were, most of us in this room would still be pretty safe. So there's not, I'll wait, so there's not any virtue in ugliness. However, in other places, the Bible seems positive about the good looks of David and Esther. The thing we have to realize this morning is how powerful appearances can deceive us. Scripture tells us also that Saul was a handsome young man, and there was not a man among the people of Israel who was more handsome than he. And yet Saul's life was an unmitigated disaster. Or as I've already mentioned, David's son Absalom, he was the Fabio of the Old Testament, or Brad Pitt today. And Absalom's beauty had a violent, rebellious character. Of course, Brad Pitt is older than I am, so I guess my Hollywood references are a a bit dated. Anyway, good looks and a favored status coupled with parental indulgence rarely is going to build a strong character. Neither do they instill wisdom, which is going to become evident later on in the story. Now, Adonijah may have enjoyed a happy childhood, But his father's lack of discipline eventually is going to lead that young man to commit high treason. These are all principles we can take straight in to the Christian home. Fathers and mothers have a responsibility to hold their children accountable for their actions. The question there in verse 6, why have you done so, is a good and often necessary question you should be asking your children. It forces children to explain their actions and hopefully to examine the underlying motivations of their hearts. It may also have the desired result of helping them see how sinful they are and how much they need a Savior. It also may help them to see the difference between living for their own pleasure and living for God's pleasure. Between kinging themselves, like we talked about last time, and instead living for the glory of God. Look at verse 7 with me. Now he had conferred with Joab the son of Zerui, and with Abiathar the priest, and they allowed themselves to Adonijah. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei, ah, Ray, and the mighty men who belonged to David, were not with Adonijah. Adonijah sacrificed sheep, oxen, and fattened steers by the stone of Zoholeth, which is beside Enrogel, and he invited all his brothers, the king's sons, and all the men of Judah, the king's servants. But he did not invite Nathan, the prophet, Benaniah, the mighty man, or his brother Solomon. Following the example of his infamous brother Absalom, Adonijah began to promote himself and generate popular support And the unthinking people all joined his crusade. Step one involved in talking to the right people and getting them on your side. These days we call that networking. Adonijah targeted two key individuals whose support would greatly strengthen him and who for different reasons he may have expected to be sympathetic to his cause. So wisely, Adonijah got the support of both the army and the priesthood by enlisting Joab the general and Abiathar the high priest. Both of those men had served David for years and had stood with him during his most difficult trials, but now at the end they are turning against him. And it does seem sad that at the very end, these guys have decided to be traitors. Solomon be Israel's next king, and Abiathar and Joab certainly understood that as well. And though their both their careers ended in disgrace, both of these men were key leaders. Joab was the commander of Israel's army, and for many years he had served as David's right-hand man. Joab was the general who helped the king conquer Jerusalem and who suppressed every rebellion against his royal throne and who also protected David by assassinating his enemies. But Joab had also been responsible for the death of David's son Absalom, which went directly contrary to David's orders and which put him out of royal favor and also diminished his political influence. And so in an astonishing move, David appointed Amasa as commander in place of Joab. Joab dealt with this difficulty by killing Amasa and taking control once again. Now we are given the clear impression that in the end, Joab was still loyal to David's kingdom, but the relationship with David himself had become strained and difficult to say the least. So perhaps he's thinking by aligning himself with Adonijah, Joab could once again regain his powerful position in the kingdom. Abiathar the high priest was also making a power grab. Like Joab, he was one of the king's old associates, a man who had been with David almost from the beginning. Abiathar was not the high priest, yet it seems perhaps that he wanted to be. In any case, he decided that he would follow Adonijah in his rise to power. But once again, why did Joab and Abiathar side with Adonijah in this rebellion? I suggest it's because Joab and Abiathar had both been hurt by David. What do I mean? Following Absalom's rebellion, David appointed Amasa to be commander in Joab's place. Now, later on, when Joab killed Amasa, he returned to a position of power, but he knew in his heart that he had not been David's first choice. Likewise, Abiathar the priest was aware of the fact that David had exalted and approved of Zadok above him, as perhaps hinted by the fact that whenever Abiathar and Zadok's names ever appear together in the Scripture, Zadok's name is always first. So, possibly, because Joab and Abiathar had their feelings hurt, they chose to rebel. This is why we must be all so careful that we do not allow the root of bitterness to spring up in our heart and to soil our souls. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Or Paul would declare in Ephesians 4:32, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God for Christ's sake has forgiven you. This may be hard for some of you to hear, but no matter who has wronged you, no matter how they have wronged you, you must forgive them. If you don't forgive them totally and unconditionally, you will sooner or later be the one that's the worst for it. As your life will eventually become full of bitterness. And as I've said in the past, not forgiving someone is like drinking battery acid and then waiting for them to die. Never let someone who has done you wrong live rent-free in your head like that. You're only hurting yourself and often those around you who truly do love you. But back to our text. Notice also who Adonijah was careful not to invite. He purposely ignored several other important leaders in the kingdom, including Zadok, the high priest, Benaniah, the leader of the king's personal guard, Nathan the prophet, and all of David's mighty men. When you think about this list, Adonijah should have known that these group of people were the death knell to his hopes. He ignores both the prophet and the priest as he really didn't care while God thought about all of this. He then left out Benaniah, who was over the king's bodyguard, and the mighty men, who were the main officers over the standing army, and they represented the power base present in Jerusalem, who were still loyal to King David. They were a formidable combination. And so Adonijah's only hope was to speedily win the confidence and support of the people outside Jerusalem by staging a coup. This was now what he attempted to do. But, what should Adonijah have done? Really, one of the best places for anyone to start in life is with the first question of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Now, Adonijah didn't know that catechism, of course, but he could have learned the first principle from the Law of Moses. And it is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Adonijah had this exactly backwards. He was living for his own glory and his own enjoyment, rather than for the glory and the pleasure of God. What makes this especially ironic is Adonijah's very name means, the Lord is master. Yet Adonijah Adonijah wants to be his own master, and thus he never submitted to the rule of God. To be more specific, he never submitted to the authority of the prophet, the priest, or the king that God had established in Israel. As we have seen, Adonijah conferred with Joab the general and Abiathar the priest. But he never conferred with the men who had the true God-given spiritual authority in Israel, who were the prophet, the high priest, and the king. The reason that matters is because those men were the rightful leaders in Israel. And Adonijah was the very opposite of what his father David had been as the Lord exalted David and made him the king. Consider the portrait of Adonijah that we have seen in his high opinion of himself, his aspiration to be important, and his love of displaying his own importance. Also notice this, his gathering of like-minded people around him and his avoidance of those who do not share his overrated view of himself. I'm glad that doesn't happen anymore. I say with tongue firmly planted in cheek. That also teaches us that the church can still suffer from unqualified leadership. When Peter the Great wanted to launch his Russian Navy, he promoted three of his buddies to the high offices. He appointed them as Admiral, Vice Admiral, and Rear Admiral, which might have not been a bad thing, except the first two had never been on a boat. And the only boat the last guy had ever been on was when he crossed the English Channel as a passenger. I think there is kind of like an applicational spillover in the church today. In 1 Timothy 3, Paul lays down the qualification of church leaders. I think it's very telling that those qualifications almost totally stress godliness rather than giftedness and character rather than skill. So we should not delude ourselves into thinking that Adonijah is dead in the church today. He lives under different names. But we even find him in the New Testament in 3 John where we read that Diotrephes loves to be first. There are still Adonijahs who strut about the church even this morning. I'll never forget, at our last church, we went to a camp meeting, and as one of the speakers was walking up to the platform, he had a servant behind him carrying his Bible and his glass of water on a silver tray. I was hoping it was a comedy skit or an illustration, and he would get to the pulpit and say, well, that's not how things should be. That didn't happen. Listen. If I ever ask any of you to do something like that, please just take me out into the parking lot and just beat the snot out of me. <laughs> I would consider it a personal favor. Verse 11, please. Then Nathan spoke to Bathsheba the mother of Solomon, saying, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? And David, our Lord, does not know it. So now, please, let me give you advice and save your life and the life of your son Solomon. Go at once to King David and say to him, Have you not, my lord the king, sworn to your servants, saying, Solomon, your son, certainly shall be my king after me, and he shall sit on my throne? Why then has Adonijah become king? Behold, while you are still there speaking with the king, I will come in after you. And confirm your words. At this critical moment in the history of Israel, one man understood exactly what was at stake. Nathan knew what would happen if Adonijah proved to be successful and it would be that Bathsheba and Solomon would both be killed. For in ancient times it was customary for a king to put to death all of his rivals. So the whole situation was a royal crisis. By trying to usurp the throne, Adonijah was threatening the royal succession, and with that, all the promises that God had made to the house of David. This was more than just a power struggle. It was a life and death conflict over the kingdom of God. Everyone had a destiny-deciding choice and it was simply this, which king are you going to serve? And that is the exact same question facing every one of us in this room this morning. Now Nathan and Bathsheba chose to serve Solomon, and in choosing to serve Solomon, they were choosing to serve the kingdom of God as Solomon was God's appointed ruler. But it took courage for Bathsheba and Nathan to do what they did. Think about it. They could not know whether the old king had the strength or the will to even act as they had hoped. After all, he could die at any time. Where would that leave them? Might Adonijah hear of their loyalty to David? What would become of the prophet then and the mother of Solomon? Solomon. Nathan and Bathsheba put their hope in the oath that David had made to Solomon's mother. And as I've been saying, that meant their hope was in the promise of God that stood behind David's oath. As Nathan will finish up what he's going to say to the king, the future of the kingdom and the future of Nathan and Bathsheba are all hanging in the balance. Somehow, Nathan had learned of the festivities to which he had not been invited. Indeed, we're going to eventually see that he seems to know more about it than what we have yet even saw yet. Now, we do not know whether Nathan learned these things directly from the Lord, which is a distinct possibility as he was a prophet or from some other place. But with so many people invited... Adonijah's feast was probably not a very well-kept secret. Of course, I've heard the only safe way to keep a secret is to just tell one person and then immediately kill them. Either way, everything we know about Nathan suggests that his response to Adonijah's self-promotion will be worth taking seriously. The last place we saw Nathan was years ago, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where he rebuked his friend David over the scandal with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband Uriah the Hittite. Yet now, at the end of his days, David is going to receive Nathan, and the sense is, is that Nathan has remained a true and trusted friend. David did not treat Nathan as an enemy even when Nathan had confronted him with a hard and painful truth. There is real wisdom and maturity in that. And I don't know. And this is total conjecture on my part. But I am certain that David told Solomon about the affair that he had with Bathsheba, which resulted both in the death of her husband Uriah and the death of the baby. I'm also sure he told the time that Nathan came to him with the story of the rich man, representing David, who took and killed the lamb of the poor man, representing Uriah. David's indignant reply to Nathan about the callousness of that rich man, was, that man should surely die. To which Nathan replied, you are that man, David. I bet you could have heard a pin drop in that room. So once again, this is total conjecture. But I have to wonder that when Solomon was writing Proverbs later on, that he thought about that time. When he was writing Proverbs 27.5, which reads, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Doesn't that describe that situation perfectly? Nathan truly did love David, and that is why he rebuked David. Truly faithful, are the wounds of a friend. So, as we finish up this morning, trouble was brewing in Richmond. It was 1863, and some of the women in the Confederate capital were incensed over the rise of food prices, and so they decided to protest. Minerva Meredith, a butcher's assistant, six feet tall, brandishing a navy revolver and a bowie knife, led the rampage. I'm scared of the woman just reading that. Anyway, some 300 women plus children were screaming, we want bread, we want bread. They also rioted, smashing plate glass windows and carting off not surprisingly far more than just food. They ignored the mayor's warning, as well as a company of militia that had threatened to fire on them. Then a few of them noticed a thin, small man in gray gray, walk up and climb to a loaded cart and began to address the mob in no uncertain terms. They quieted when they saw him empty his pockets and throw his money at them. He yelled, You say you are hungry and have no money? Here is all I have. It's not much, but take it. Then with open watch in hand and an eye on the company of the militia, He assured the furious females that he wanted no one injured. Nevertheless, the lawlessness must stop. He held up his watch. They had five minutes to disperse, or they would be fired upon. The women knew he was not given to idle threats, and within five minutes, they had all vanished. So Jeff Davis, president of the Confederacy, dispersed, a mob. You think, what difference one man can make? That is the situation we find ourselves in in 1 Kings chapter 1. Everything, humanly speaking, is hinging on Nathan. Now, I don't think we should use this text as a piece of Christian cheerleading or religious rah-rah, I don't think it's grabbing us by the lapels and telling us all to become a Nathan. But surely, it implies that one's service in Christ's kingdom has a real dignity about it. And that one can never tell how crucial a servant's labor may prove to be. Surely, a Lord who remembers cups of water handed to his people does not think lightly of our faithfulness, major or minor. And kingdom work can include any good thing that is done for Christ as King, anything that advances His kingdom, or opposes His proud enemies, or speaks in defense of His kingship. We can do kingdom work in the marketplace. Whenever we make a fair sale, build a solid house, or do any task, if we do it for Christ, we are advancing the cause of our King by bearing witness to the values of the kingdom. We can do kingdom work in our homes. Whenever you put beautiful flowers on the table, or pick up your dirty socks, or decide to be the first one who says, I'm sorry, we are bearing witness to the kingdom of God. We can also do kingdom work in our society. Whenever we oppose the evil of abortion, or work for the end of child abuse, or take an active role in what is happening in the lives of the people in our neighborhood. That, too, is kingdom work. We can also do kingdom work through the ministry of the church by inviting friends to church, passing out Bibles, and welcoming people no matter their appearance. It can also be seen in supporting people overseas and laboring in prayer for people doing all kinds of ministry that we are either not gifted to do or called to do. This is all the more true When we tell people the gospel in words, they can hear and understand, which is the most direct way to advance the kingdom of Christ. If Jesus Christ is the king, then we should do whatever we can for his kingdom. After all, Jesus himself has done everything he could do for his kingdom. He has even done what no other king would even dare to do when He laid down His life and offered His blood for His people. Given what He has done for us, it is only right for us to do whatever we can for Him and His Kingdom. As Matthew Henry said, whatever power, interest, or influence men have, they ought to improve it to the utmost to the preserving and advancing of the Kingdom of the Messiah. So. Can Nathan and Bathsheba alter the course of history? Come back next week to find out. I will have a different teleprompter, and hopefully that will never happen again. Let us pray. (laughs) Lord, like Adonijah, I know what it's like to be or want to be king in your place. Like him, I can be a spoiled brat, only wanting my way. I also know that never works. Help us to find our God-given place in your kingdom and then get to work doing what you would have us to do. And Lord, please place Nathans in our lives who have both the courage and the love to tell us the things, not just the things that we want to hear, but more than that, the things we need to hear. Soften our hearts, Lord, that your Holy Spirit can do the work he desires to do on each one of us. This morning, we once again gladly place you on the throne of our hearts, for you alone are the lover of our souls. We ask these things in the name of our coming King, King Jesus. Amen. Thank you, God.